0: In the evolution of direct primary care, how do a bunch of practices come together and what's the impact when that happens? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. This is the Shift Shapers podcast, connecting benefits advisors with thought leaders and entrepreneurs who are shaping the shifts in the industry. And now here's your host. David Saltzman. And to help us answer that question, we've invited Dr. Kyle Rickner. Kyle is co-founder and chairman at Primary Health Partners. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you very much, David. Glad to be here. It's our our pleasure. Um, Tell us a little bit about your journey. I'm always fascinated with physicians who find their way into direct primary care because we're big advocates of that
1: here. Yeah. So I think my journey was a lot like many others that we were being squeezed by the traditional fee for service system. The, the joy of medicine was being squeezed out. The, um, time with patients was being squeezed out. Our autonomy was being squeezed out. So, um, this led to a very popular topic of physician burnout. Um, and, you know, in, in 2014 was the first time that I was exposed to hearing about the model of direct primary care. And um, my partner, Dr. Robert Lockwood, was there with me. And literally that that day in that hallway at that conference room, we said, we're, we're doing that. We really don't care what it takes. And I think we saw it for what it is, and that is it could really be a solution for for so many things the the changing of the physician experience and physician burnout, but could completely alter the patient experience with engaging healthcare and their doctor. And then um, not just as a care model, but also as a business model could make a great impact in an unsustainable pattern of cost increase in medicine. So, Um, we sort of saw that quickly and and said, we're, we're going to do this. So, um, he and I had both worked for a large health system for a number of years, myself for almost 10 years and he for over 12 years. And, uh, we were, I think fortunately or unfortunately depends on your perspective. We were both executive physicians. So we, we saw behind the curtain, if you will, and we didn't like what we saw and, uh, So we essentially became those doctors that got to deliver bad news to other doctors. And so we were very aware of the frustrations that um, our colleagues were going through and saw this as a way not only to relieve ourselves of a lot of the frustration, but hopefully be able to help them as well. Yeah, I've, I've always had trouble
0: conceiving the notion that doctors go to all that schooling and all that training so that they can get moved further and further and further away from their patients. I suspect that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I suspect that the vast majority of folks who go into medicine really want to practice in their mind's eye in a kind of direct primary care environment rather than in a big hospital-driven, hospital-owned, no-autonomy, no-value practice.
1: Well, I would I would say that for the physicians that know about. It. And then, in In addition to that, this generation makes me sound old, but they don't really know any different um I'm just old enough that i I did know different. I knew doctors who are autonomous and how attractive that was in the old days and so you're right we We never encounter a physician and are presented with what we do, and they look at us and say you know, that sounds really neat and all, but I prefer this other way. They they just don't do that. But there are confounding factors because that begs the question then, well, why aren't more of them doing it? And there's a lot of confounding factors. Um, you know, up front, the biggest of which is uh, the increasing amount of student loan debt that people are graduating with sort of Makes it where as much money up front as they can get would be the best solution for them, and of course the health systems are unashamedly offering them as much as possible to to get their claws into them. And then, you know, secondly, once once they've done that and they are feeling the squeeze and the burnout, uh, they're they're facing a um, transitional risk and a transitional. Sacrifice in order to to make the move over, and you know that's uncomfortable, and not all of them are are willing to do that. I mean, there's there's real world life issues like families and kids and mortgages and and all of the above. So we uh, we're, we we combat a lot of that, and um, and we we feel sorry for the physicians and. Uh, there are solutions in the future, I think, to those, but we're 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 a little ways away from those.
0: You know, it, it's fascinating. Along that line, I don't want to go too far into this rabbit hole, but a question for you: Along that line, the concept of medical home has been around for a long time. It was the American Academy of Pediatricians, I think, that first um, first discussed that? Why has it taken so long for direct primary care or medical home, if you prefer, to kind of get its start to get its legs
1: under it? well it's it's like most anything else david you you follow the money i mean the the reimbursement models um didn't fit it the way that most people uh come to their healthcare through their benefits didn't support direct primary care so it was sort of a an outside the system entity for for much of the time and and there's been some great progress in that and i'm hoping we'll talk more about that in a little bit but Really, to it, it wouldn't gain traction because this whole idea, and, and I've listened to you enough to know that you understand that we had this transitional misuse of health insurance. It, it is uh, used unlike any other form of insurance. I mean, just in broad terms, insurance is supposed to be used for two things and two things only, the unexpected and the expensive. And in healthcare, for some reason, we decided that it need to pay for the expected and the inexpensive. Well, as soon as you do that, it it sort of bastardizes the the vehicle and the expense starts to go up sharply. And as we... No, the insurance companies will not allow themselves to actuarially be in a in a negative place. So premiums continued to rise, and and I know you're you're very aware of that. And so it sort of created this problem that I'm paying for this very expensive benefit, and I want to use my benefit. And then there's this little direct primary care thing over here that didn't use that benefit. So that created a, a little bit of a chasm that, that requires some education to to get over.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because I've had really great commercial insurance and now I'm on Medicare, but I still pay for a direct primary care relationship. And that's the next piece I wanted to talk about is, you know, before we get into what kind of is going on and the shifts in the industry, um, mm-hmm. what's the patient experience? Like, I know that, but can you explain the difference from a patient perspective? Because to me, that's really the game changer. And I'm absolutely. just old enough to remember family doctors who came out to your house with their little black bag.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mention that because I say we're old school docs in the new world. Instead of a black bag, we carry a black phone. Um, but on the on the patient side, what what they're going to experience is having a personal physician that they actually have access to. Uh, More importantly, someone they can have a relationship with. So it sort of breaks down the barriers of access. So by controlling the number of patients in a panel, you're able to provide access either electronically, digitally, or in person, same day or next day. And so patients are able to have the convenience of the technology, uh, the easy connection or the access to the physician same day next day so when needs arise needs can be met in in a timely manner i'm just old enough that i remember when we didn't have urgent cares didn't exist those only came out of the necessity of the inaccessibility of the primary care physicians and so we're we're trying to to turn that upside down the other thing that comes out of it for the patient is coming into an unstressed environment in which medicine is practiced, not relying on volumes of care, and so we rarely have people waiting in the waiting room for any length of time. So we have a short to zero wait time, and then guess what? They experience a long, nice, comfortable visit with their physician, if so wanted or required. I, I mean, they can get in and out if that's what they need on that day, but. So it, it really is a, a stress-free, hassle-free uh, environment where um, they can enjoy a relationship and unfettered access to their physician. And, and I think that that experience, and like you, since you've experienced some of that, no one ever experiences it and goes, you know, that's really great and all, but I, I prefer the other way. I think I'll, I'll go back to that other world. Well, and
0: you know the the other piece, which maybe is a little bit more intangible, and this is my experience, but as I talk to people, I find that others have had similar experiences. Is it allows the physician the time to actually do research and to think about stuff? I mean, I had a very strange set of uh, set of conditions that, for all the world, looked like pancreatic cancer a few years ago. And mm-hmm. Peter Cicchetti up and up in Maine, who was my direct primary care doc, said to me. I don't know what the hell this is, but it's not pancreatic cancer. And it took him four months of research, but he finally figured out what it was. And instead of getting chemo and all that nonsense and maybe a Whipple procedure, I ended up taking a bunch of prednisone and I was fine in eight months. So that kind of ability for the folks on the stethoscope side of the equation to be able to think and take time and whatnot without having the pressure of having to have 407-minute visits during the course of a day is also... Great both for the physician, I suspect,
1: but it certainly is great for the patient. Yeah. So, I mean, we go through an extensive amount of investment of time and energy um, and finances into uh, our training. And it's actually refreshing and invigorating to be able to use that training to its fullest. So, Whereas in my previous life in a fee-for-service world, if a patient came in with a list of diagnosis, long medication list, my internal stress meter went up immediately because I knew immediately it is going to be very difficult to address everything that needs to be addressed in the time that I have. But I have to try to pretend like it doesn't stress me. So um, and and literally the proverbial can gets kicked down the road, whether that's to another follow up visit with the primary care or as many health systems rely on a referral to a specialist for something Mm -hmm. that we as primary care could handle if we had the time. So now we we sort of lick our chops when the more difficult cases come in, it's 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 exciting and very it's challenging in a good way to where we can have time to figure this out. The other thing that sort of hasn't necessarily been talked about a lot, but but because we have a nice group of physicians, we have collegial consults and people have time. And so, we actually can have physician to physician interactions and put our heads together. And so, um, which is very stimulating and enjoyable on the physician side, and very beneficial on the patient side. So, to your case, so that that was a great case, and and I could tell of multiple cases where um, myself or any of our physicians have been able to spend more time and and come to a solution. Wait,
0: to kind of transition a little bit, you mentioned you know having a group of physicians and being able to have these collegial conversations and consultations. One of the challenges in a lot of areas is that we have these direct primary care deserts, I call them. Mm-hmm. And I know that's something that you're working on addressing. What's happening like from where you are? How did that happen? Was it organic? Was it something that was planned? And what does it mean, do you think, for the future of direct primary care writ large?
1: Well, I th- I think one of the um, for sure, early criticisms and and somewhat ongoing criticisms is the inability of direct primary care to scale to need um we We represent still a small percentage overall of primary care physicians and then the issue of do we actually or can we take care of a population um so I see. I see a couple of areas of solutions that have already been done and are being done um, that make a huge difference. Um, The first of which is direct primary care doctors, even of different practices in different states, um, are showing that we can work together to take care of a group under the same model of care, although we may not be part of the same practice. So I love telling people with permission that our our largest client has over 2,500 lives in 14 states. And we were able to coordinate the care for them and take care of the people here in Oklahoma where I'm uh, at, but then uh, make arrangements with other direct primary care doctors in those other states to take care of the employees and families in those states. So that is a scalable process that, frankly, health systems can't even pull off. So um, rather than those patients historically being linked by a large PPO insurance uh, type of system, uh, they can all have access to direct primary care. And then the other thing is, I do think what direct primary care has lacked, uh, by and large, is... Actual groups of physicians are a single practice in multiple locations that begins to be able to grow with um, business clients and retail clients uh, to a point where we can provide sort of, I hate the word, but uh, our own network of uh, providers that can take care of, of companies and do it in a way where we actually can control the processes and control the environment and by some degree control the quality of the product that that's being delivered so both those things are happening it's it's very exciting um and i think we're showing an ability to be flexible and scale in a way that um has not been seen in medicine before frankly i know that there've been a couple of firms
0: in different parts of the country that have tried to grow out a all under one roof, multi-state model, and it hasn't hasn't really worked yet. What what do you think is the challenge in in pushing that that model of scalability forward?
1: Yeah, so I think the challenge is is to make sure that you have the right resources, infrastructure, and processes in place before you outgrow those. Just like with any other business, um, there there's a challenge there to to look at look inwardly and and decide what we're doing and are we doing it right are we are we doing it with excellence in everything that we do and then how do we bridge the gap of miles so that if we open a clinic uh in another area that that it it looks the same feels the same and you know every other business industry has figured this out i mean you think about all the franchise models of food mm-hmm. Delivery And they certainly have have done it. And I'm not necessarily advocate advocating for franchising in in medicine, but they've they've proven a scalability. Once you have a foundation of processes and infrastructure that then you can properly train others on. So that's that is what we're exactly in the middle of here at primary health partners is is doing those things exactly so that. Um, as we we don't out expand or outgrow uh, what we have the ability to do.
0: Um, we've got a couple of minutes left, and you know, as you know, I'm a, a marketer and business development guy. And something that you said to me in our pre interview just kind of struck me, and that is that you want to be seen as a better option, not just a different option. Talk about that for a moment, if you will.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think we've kind of alluded to the fact that you know when doctors are given enough time. They have adequate training to handle an immense amount—80 um, to 90 percent of a person's healthcare needs. And so, I think your the patient side is getting the engagement for from a physician that actually, if given enough time, can produce better results. And we're we're actually studying that in terms of chronic disease management and some outcomes, and seeing that. Wow, it really does improve. People actually do get better and uh, I know the American Academy of Family Practice is actually studying some of that. They're very intrigued with the direct primary care model and and what those outcomes look like and and um milliman the the large actuarial house is is participating in in that effort and that process and so we are on the verge of an enormous amount of data coming into the marketplace, which, as you well know, in the insurance industry, it's really all about data, actuarial mm-hmm. data and impact. So that has been the thing that in direct primary care we've truly lacked. Uh, we had a great narrative um, and it worked, but the data gathering process uh, is antiquated and has always been based on claims data. And since we don't generate any claims, the system sputters at at how do we actually quantify what these guys do? How do we know what we're getting? And so we're trying to push that envelope and um, help figure that part of it out because good things are happening uh, from a cost perspective, from a quality perspective, from an outcomes perspective. um, And we're trying to really dive into that and gather as much data as possible. And there are other interested parties in, in doing that. And I think the story is going to be told very well, not just narratively, but numerically and fiscally uh, moving forward.
0: Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I hope you'll come back as you push that rock up the hill, because it, I, in short, it's about time. I mean, I, I certainly think the need is there. And once people find out how much better a model it is, I, to me, it's the biggest no-brainer in the history of Earth. But, you know, oh. there's got to be coverage, and that's been, that's been the problem. Yeah, I'm uh, with you. Kyle Rittner, co-founder and chairman at Primary Health Partners. Kyle, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with our audience. No, oh, Thank you so much for having me, David. Appreciate it. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shapers, LLC. The content and images of this podcast may not be used without our express written permission. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.